Northwestern Medicine, relentless in their pursuit of better health care. Learn more at nm.org slash better. Welcome back, Dr. Most. Always lovely to have you with us on the show. Good morning, Dean. How are you guys doing this morning? We are doing uh, A-OK. I wish it were a little sunnier uh, today. Uh, when it's overcast like this, I think a lot of people just have a hard time getting their motors started. You know what I mean? Is, is, does, does that have to do with uh, lack of vitamin D? Or, I mean, is there some medical reason for all of that? Or are we, you know, just no, la- no. lazy? There's, Am I just lazy? No, no, no. No, no, no. There's definitely medical uh, behind it. And it's interesting, Dean. When the sun is out and our body sees it, it releases endorphins, which make us feel good. Those yeah. are the good hormones, and it's make us feel pleasurable. Which is really interesting because one of the defenses we would say is, okay, are people wearing sunblock on days that they feel good? And more importantly, are people wearing sunblock today? Because the UVA, UVB rays are just as strong today, whether there's clouds there really? or no clouds. No kidding. Yep, but people think, oh, I'm protected today. I don't need to wear sunblock today. That's exactly what I would have thought, that I, I don't need any kind of protection because it's so overcast outside. But you still need to protect your skin from uh, those rays, huh? Correct. Those UV rays are going to go right through those clouds. They may be diminished a little bit, but not to a point where you don't need protection. Well, I've got every light uh, in the studio turned on. <laughs> I'm one of those people that I need uh, I, I need the light to uh, to function. So, uh, well, yeah, and it, it, it's not uncommon too. Think about in the winter. You know, seasonal yeah. affective disorder is based on individuals not receiving enough of a proper wavelength of light, and they they get depression from it. So yeah. it's not unusual that people want to be in a very well lit environment. Um, from a psychological and a antidepressive point of view. Yeah, I, I am very much affected by all that. Uh, as opposed to Thursday when I was out covering the uh, you know first day of Lollapalooza for WGN TV, it was bright and beautiful and sunny outside. There was a beautiful breeze off the lake. It was a, a perfect morning, uh, and I was you know well protected with uh, my my SPFs. But uh, I've, I felt it when I, I came back inside. I was like, wow, you. It doesn't take much to, you know, get the effects of the the sun, even though you are still wearing all kinds of protection. I had a hat on. I mean, I practically had a beekeeper suit on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Dean, and I'm sure during that time, you probably weren't hydrating as much as you should. So sometimes coming in, not only do you feel burnt, but you just feel kind of exhausted a little bit. And it's mainly from dehydration. Yeah, yep. Yep, yep. Well, if we ever get any sunshine back, uh, keep all of that in mind, everybody. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's see what we have going on here today. I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was back-to-school time. Uh, if you go into any store now, all the, all the back-to-school merchandise is already on the shelf. That means our kids are going uh, back to uh, grade school, middle school, high school, college uh, what do parents need to be thinking about health-wise as they send their kids back to school this fall? Yeah, Dean, and you, I'm, I'm glad you said it that way because you touched on the entire spectrum, all the way from grade school all the way through college, you know. And as we go into grade school, parents say, oh, i got to get them in for their school physical. And it's almost like, oh, I just need to check the box. But remember, these kids are fairly healthy, and this is the one opportunity for a physician to lay eyes on them and to look for any abnormalities and to look for any concerns. So 
and also to make sure their immunizations are up to date. So that's those earlier ones. And then as we get older, we start to say, oh, my son is now going to go play football or basketball and needs a sports physical. And those are really important. Obviously, I know you talked with Dr. Babka last week. You know, when we look at things like uh, Bronnie James and we say, okay, what are we going to do to protect our kids from a medical point of view and those that are participating in, in sporting events? So that physical is even more focused. And then you touch on the other end where it's the college kids. You're finally getting them out of the house. You're just happy to pack the car to get them out of there. And that's probably one of the biggest ones because now they are gone. Now they are outside of your environment. You no longer have the assets and the, the opportunity to help them. So there's probably some key points there that we should touch on. Okay, so uh, let's let's start off with uh, the college uh, students as they're heading off. What kinds of uh, preventative measures, uh, things uh, that parents and students, hey, come on, you're grown-ups now, take care of yourself if you're you know above 18. Uh, what are the kinds of things that they should be concerned with? Yeah, it's interesting also the way you put that. They're grown-ups now, right? Three months earlier, they were high school students, but now all of a sudden, quote-unquote, they're grown-ups, right. and they are ready to go out on their own. So we need to know that this is a transition, and this is not just jumping off a cliff. You know, many students right now are on medications, whether it's for depression, whether it's for ADHD, some even for something as you know, like uh, elevated cholesterol. So we need to know if patients, if kids are on those medications, they're going away from college, that's going to be the last thing they're thinking about. They're thinking about the mini fridge. They're thinking about all the things they need in their room. So certainly making sure that they, one, have enough medication. And two, if those medications are being delivered by mail, that the right address is put because you don't want a child to run out of a chronic medication while they're at school. And even at that point, I would say the parents need to check in so often and say, hey, just check in to make sure you're taking your medicine, but do it in a subtle way. Hey, do do I need to get that prescription refilled for you? you know, knowing that they should be running out. So medications is probably one of the biggest ones. And then probably one that parents really need to understand is that once their child turns 18, they have rights. They have health rights. And one of those health rights is privacy. So if their 18-year-old or 19-year-old freshman in college got injured and went to the emergency room, that doctor, you can call and say, hey, you know, is my child there? I want to talk to the doctor. And unless you have signed a HIPAA form where the child, and I shouldn't say child, the young adult, gives permission for that doctor to talk to a parent, they can't do that. And that frustrates wow. parents so much. So yeah. it's really one of those where you got to understand, they're adults. Just like if an adult, if your brother was in the hospital or something and you called and said, hey, tell me what's going on. Sure. No, he hasn't given us that authority to share that information with you. So that's a big one I stress to parents. Get a HIPAA sign. Get a HIPAA form signed prior to them leaving. You can get them online. Have the student take it with them, and make sure it's in their medical record. Well, you know, because uh, you know, maybe not at the start of the school year, but as the year goes on, uh, you know, the the, chi- uh, the ch- young adults may have uh, medical issues that they don't want their parents uh, to know about. Uh, you know, does, is that in conflict with what you're talking about of having a, a HIPAA form signed? Well, yes and no. You know, there's limited information that some inform, some information that can be shared. And the, the, the patient or the student, however we want to uh, say, he has total control. 
he could just because your HIPAA fine, sign form does not mean oh go and share everything with everybody and they can look at it. No, it would be can this can I share this information with patient X? Have you signed that? So the patient certainly would say, hey, no, I don't want anybody to know this. This is my private information. I don't want it shared with anybody. Versus, no, I do want you to share this. So it really comes down to the individual and the patient. Now, if that patient is unconscious, certainly we're going to go to that HIPAA form to say, who can we talk to? Who can we share information with? Now, uh, in terms of uh, just general health, uh, is it a good idea, uh, you know, if kids are headed off to college, say, for example, uh, that they get exams? Are, are those even required when you... Uh, you know, start uh, a college someplace? Some colleges do. And the reason that many colleges do it is kind of interesting. One is they want to have a baseline health information on you so that at least they know some of the basics with you as you come in so that if you do show up at the health services at the university, they at least have some background on you. And two, probably more importantly, is they want to make sure your immunizations are up to date. And you don't want to find that out on day three of school saying, oh, wait a second, you don't have your meningitis vaccine and we require that here, therefore you can't start school. So certainly they're going to tell you what the school, age school is different, but what the schools are going to say, these are required immunizations and this is what we require from a health information point when you join this university. Which ones are required now in Illinois? Well, in Illinois, MMR, and then the Tdap, which is tetanus and diphtheria, and then meningitis. Those are the ones that are required. And most schools are going to say, hey, you really should get a, uh, influenza. You really should get a COVID test. But when we look at the, the college setting, we look at these groups getting together in very close environments. If you remember probably, what is it, like six years ago, we didn't think pertussis was going to come back that much. And yet an outbreak at University of Iowa showed us, hey, we need to make sure that these kids don't just get a tetanus shot, but they get the tetanus and pertussis shot. Mm -hmm. So that's been added. And then meningitis is a very common illness that runs rampant through colleges, so one that we really want to make sure. So those are the three basics, but we certainly would recommend the hepatitis vaccine series, we would recommend COVID, we would recommend influenza, anything that's going to slow down the spread of transmission of an illness through a population that is very tight and spends a lot of time together. Right. I'm glad you mentioned COVID. We haven't really talked about it very much uh, on this segment, but uh, it is still something uh, if people are going to be living in those close quarters and, you know, big groups and like that, like they would be at college, or people who are have uh, immune deficiencies, uh, the COVID should still be something that they're concerned about, right? Absolutely. So the COVID, you know, they should have that booster now. They should do that before going out. <clears throat> We've seen a bump in COVID. We've got a 10 15% bump in COVID over the last two weeks. And right now we're waiting, probably will be out this week, the approval of what the booster will be for this fall. We're waiting anxiously to hear what that is going to be and what the timing of its availability will be. But kids in college going into college now should at least have a normal series and the one booster that's already been approved. So uh, strongly would recommend that. And again, this is for two reasons. One, you don't want your child sick early in the year, whatever time in the year where he's going to miss school. You're paying a lot of money for that child to go to school. And you don't want him to miss any days because of illness. And the two, you don't want to be the conduit to spread it to many other individuals, whether it be in his dorm, his fraternity, his sorority, or even in the classroom. 
Uh, we've got uh, lots of questions for you on our text line. If you've got one, you can uh, call on the regular phone, 312-981-7200, or give us a text, 312-981-7200. Dr. Kevin Most returns in a moment. 951, Dr. Kevin Most, Central DuPage Hospital, on the line with us. And uh, Rick is going to be up first this week. Hi, Rick. You're on WGN. Thank you very much. A quick question, doctor, and thank you for all your help. A friend of mine had a knee replacement done. It turns out she's allergic to metal. Terrible pain after the replacement. Eventually, the doctor came in, took out the knee replacement about a year later, put in a titanium one, still in terrible pain from that one. Does anybody make a totally non-metallic knee replacement? And if so, where is that done? Wow, Rick, you know, that's unfortunate. It's very highly, highly unusual to be allergic to those metals. And you know what? I don't know if there's a composite made up right now of uh, for knee replacements, just because the companies that do it have such rare side effects such similar to this that no company has probably pursued that to make a plastic one or to make a more composite one. I don't know of one, and that's a really good, good very good question. Um, I wish I had a good answer for you. I would say that, you know, checking with, you know, some of the higher-end uh, universities where we're doing a lot of knee replacements, be it Northwestern or Rush, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush is a very high-volume uh, knee replacement uh, uh, university, and they may have more insight into any research that's going on for non-metallic knee replacements. But it, that that side effect is so rare that... Um, I don't see a company doing it right now. I thought maybe something out of ceramic, but like you said, they maybe don't make something like that. There's maybe not much call for it. Yeah, that would be exactly it. They would need to, one, do the study that it's strong enough and that it works well enough, and then, two, they'd have to figure out if the market is there. Because I can tell you the knee replacements, Rick, that are going in right now used to be big and bulky, and now they're getting smaller and and more uh, complex and more technologically advanced, not only so that they work better, but so that they last longer. Um, But certainly I wish I had a really good answer for you there, and unfortunately I don't. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, good, good luck with that. I would think that, uh, you know, orthopedic specialists would know every single option which is available, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here is uh, from the 847 area code. Uh, I still wear my mask when out in public. I've worn it since the beginning of the pandemic. People look at me like I'm crazy, but I have a hole in my lung from COVID-related pneumonia. And also care for my 88-year-old mother who has lung disease. I wish the public would be more accepting of mask wearing. Uh, I I still see people wearing masks. It wouldn't even occur to me to look at somebody like, why are you still wearing a mask? It's their choice. Absolutely, Dean. And, And that's unfortunate that she feels that way. Um, it feels she feels like, do I need to wear the scarlet letter that says, here's my medical problems, here's why I'm wearing a mask. I'm sorry, general public, we should be looking at these individuals as, one, they're either cautious, which is great, they're immunocompromised, or they're caring for someone who's immunocompromised. So let's not uh, belittle people who wear a mask. And just remember, it wasn't that long ago that we were all wearing masks. Yeah. So uh, I would say, hey, 
be polite to them, be aware of them, and actually even give them some space so that they don't feel uncomfortable. There's obviously a reason they're wearing the mask, and please honor that. Yeah, it's amazing that somebody would would even do that. That's that, just amazing to me. This is Jim. You're on WGN with Dr. Kevin Most. Hello. Yeah. Yes, good morning. Doctor, I've got a sister that lives in Portland, Oregon. Her and her family uh, have all got their Kobe shots, booster shots, everything. Um, a week ago, they all came down with Kobe. Uh, her, her husband, the two kids, uh, the grandkids ain't got it, but they did. Got it checked out. They've had all their boosters and everything. They went to the doctor. The doctor said that, I don't know if you've heard about this, it's a, a new highly infectious strain of Kobe that's uh, starting up, and they've got it. They went like the whole time. We never, you know, we're cautious, wearing masks, doing everything, and uh, they just got, you know, let their guard down, and they just caught this something new. Well, it's not brand new, Jim, but you hit on a very good point. If we all remember, the original COVID shots were for the original virus. That virus has mutated numerous times, and the the only boost that's available right now is still a good booster. But the strain we're seeing right now, the one you're talking about, is the UBV strain, and that is. It's highly contagious. That's why we're seeing a bump in cases here now. So we have to remember the vaccine does not prevent you from getting the illness. It does pretty it does in some people. But really what it does is it minimizes the symptoms and the length of illness and prevents you from going into the hospital. So individuals can still get the disease, can still get COVID. However, their immune system will protect them from advancing to something more severe that we saw in the past. We're also, just like I said a moment ago, we're also waiting for the newest update on the booster, which will be for the effective strain that is going around right now. And that should be released, the information at least, should be released here in the next week or so. So not unusual that people are still getting it. Like I said, we saw a 10%, 15% bump here around Chicago, and yet our immunization rates are probably upwards of you know, 80 90%. So people are still getting that, even though they were vaccinated, but they're having much more mild cases and it's more like a bad cold at this time. Jim, thank you for your call related uh, to a COVID question. 708 area code asks if a 75 and 77-year-old are going on a cruise soon. Is another booster advised before traveling? Our last ones were in uh, were last September. Yeah, you know, this is one depends on the timing of their cruise. If their timing of their cruise is soon and they're at that age group, I would talk to your physician and say, hey, there's not going to be any harm in getting it. And certainly we know that the immunity wanes after a period of time. Like I said, right now, the vaccine booster that we're getting is not ideal for the strain that we're seeing, but it will certainly give you some protection. And going on a cruise where it's almost like, I mean, I hate to go back to the college analogy, but you're in a close quarter with a lot of different people that you don't know anything about. So having that additional protection would not be a bad idea prior to traveling. All right, let's get one more in here uh, from Dave. You're on WGN with Dr. Kevin Most. Yes, uh, Dr. I had two both knees replaced in the early 90s. And the right one first, and then the left one six months later, whatever. That's quite a while. And now I'm getting some swelling in the right knee, and it also buckles a little bit at times. They don't hurt, but should I have those checked? Are they good for the rest of my life? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Dave, it's interesting, like we were talking about, the advancement of what these knee replacements have gone through and what's going on with them is amazing. Now, you have to remember, yours is you're 33, 30 years old in your knee there. Now, were they built to last that long? Probably not quite that long. So certainly I would say seeing somebody, letting them take some films, seeing why that's buckling, and see if it's a minor surgical procedure that can be done, or perhaps re- replacing the uh, joint replacement with the, one of the newer ones. But again, if you're in no discomfort, I wouldn't be in any rush to have the surgery but I certainly would at least get into the doctor and say, hey, can you take a look and see? Because next thing you know, you're going to have some back pain. And why do you have back pain? Because you're walking differently because your knee's bothering you. So you don't want that ripple effect when it's something that may be able to be treated either with physical therapy, another easy, lighter surgery, or perhaps even more invasive where they replace the joint. Yeah, somebody on our text line. Uh, somebody, uh, sorry, Dave, go ahead. I also had a triple lower back fusion. And uh, now I'm starting to get neuropathy, and I'm yeah. going to therapy for all of that stuff. But could that cause knee pain, too? Well, it could, but very unlikely. The neuropathy that you're getting is probably due to either scarring where you had the uh, surgery in your back, or it could be even age or any other medical condition that causes neuropathy. So certainly, you know, following up with your primary care doc to make sure that they've eliminated some of the other causes of neuropathy that can be treated, or at least getting you on some medication that can help eliminate the symptoms of the neuropathy, or at least alleviate some of them. Dave, good luck to you. And uh, Dr. Kevin Most, Chief Medical Officer, Central DuPage Hospital, always good to talk to you. Have a great Sunday, Kev. Thank you. You got it, Dean.